Hello, and welcome to the Victorian Gas Lamp, the podcast shining a warm light on the 19th century, and most notably throughout the reign of Her Majesty Queen Victoria. Episode 27, Younger, Not Junior. So this episode is, at the time of me writing it, the 27th for the podcast. Give or take what it might have been some two-parters along the way. It's been 25 episodes since I spoke about the monarch that opened the era of the 19th century, His Majesty King George III. Where does the time go? Anyway, that's the royal side of who was in charge on January 1, 1800, but who was in charge politically? Well, I'm glad you asked, because this is that podcast. And just like the episode on King George III, I do have to step outside the 1800s to begin with. William Pitt was born in May of 1759. His mother was Hester Grenville, who, aside from her own personal qualities that her son inherited, these being a determined and methodical nature, according to biographer John Ehrman, Hester was from a political family. Her brother was former Prime Minister George Grenville. And as for his father, well, young William he was the second son of William Pitt, who was the first Earl of Chatham and also a former Prime Minister himself. So you could really say that politics was in his blood. And since I've already spoiled it by saying that this podcast is about who was in charge, well, you just know that William Pitt Jr. was going to reach the political heights his father did too. But during his lifetime and throughout the annals of history, he isn't known as Junior. His father was often just called Chatham in reference to his title as the first Earl, but to many of the people of the time, and also to history, he was known as William Pitt the Elder. And his high-achieving son and star of this podcast, well, guess what? He was known as William Pitt the Younger. And as an aside, I have no idea what would have happened if William the Younger had had a son and named him William. Would he have been William the Much Younger? History? We'll never know. Anyway, as a child, William the Younger had bouts of poor health and was educated at home. He was a smart boy, though, and quickly became proficient in Greek and Latin. In 1773, before he was 14, he was admitted to Pembroke College in Cambridge. It was here that he studied mathematics, chemistry, history and political philosophy. His tutor during those years was George Prettyman, a gentleman that could and probably will have his own podcast at some stage, Mr. Prettyman became a close personal friend and in later years would continue being a source of advice throughout William the Younger's political career. It was also while at Pembroke College that William began what would become a lifelong friendship with another William, this being William Wilberforce. 
and this is someone who's definitely going to get his own episode at some stage because William Wilberforce was the leading light in the abolition movement within the United Kingdom to abolish slavery. Now, Pitt the Younger wasn't that much of a social butterfly, but William Wilberforce is cited as describing his friend's sense of humour as, quote, no man ever indulged more freely or happily in that playful facetiousness which gratifies all without wounding any, end quote. So basically Pitt made jokes and made everyone laugh without hurting feelings. Nice work. In 1776, Pitt, plagued by that continual poor health, took advantage of a little-used privilege available only to the sons of noblemen because, hey, privilege is not a recent issue and chose to graduate without having to pass examinations. Pitt's father, who by then had been raised to the peerage as Earl of Chatham, died in 1778. Because he was a younger son, William didn't receive a lot of money, but he did go on to get a legal education and was called to the bar in 1780. And it was in 1780, at the ripe old age of 21, Pitt began his political career. Contesting the University of Cambridge seat at the general election in September, his career got off again to an auspicious start when he lost. But again, privilege. William was friends with one Charles Manners, who was the fourth Duke of Rutland. They had been at university together, so hey, nothing like calling on the old boys network is there. Charles knew parliamentarian James Lothar. James was a canny politician who had a highly successful career in politics and would later be the first Earl of Lonsdale. His political position meant that James controlled the borough of Appleby and all that went on there, and a by-election in 1781 in that borough saw William sliding into Parliament and joining the House of Commons. For us, looking back, this is somewhat ironic because in later speeches and throughout the rest of his career, Pitt argued against such corruption and election rigging in boroughs, exactly like the type of event that occurred that saw him getting the job in the first place. Now, while he was always known as a quiet, withdrawn man publicly, once he was in Parliament, Pitt blossomed into an eloquent and notable speaker. Early in his career, Pitt aligned himself with the Whigs in Parliament. As a reminder, these were the more liberal or left-wing parliamentarians, the most notable of which was Charles James Fox. Fox had an incredible political career in his own right and was staunchly against King George III and his continuing war with the Americans and the War of Independence. Aligned with Fox, William Pitt believed that the current Prime Minister, Lord North, should make peace with the Americans. Politics being politics, though, saw Charles Watson Wentworth become PM in 1782 after Lord North was ousted. Watson Wentworth offered Pitt the post of Vice-Treasurer of Ireland, but he declined it, thinking that the position was beneath someone of his skills. 
That didn't really matter though, as Watson Wentworth died only three months later. Now, this 96-day term in office is technically the shortest in UK history. However, he had been in office beforehand, so the title of actual shortest PM term goes to George Canning. His term lasted 119 days in 1827. So there's some trivia for your next uh, pub night. <laughs> anyway, back to Pitt. It was William Petty, the second Earl of Shelbourne, that became Prime Minister, but many of his fellow Whigs wouldn't have a bar of him and refused to work in his ministry. Pitt, on the other hand, had no problem with the new Prime Minister, and it turns out that his intuition was correct, because Shelbourne went and made William Pitt the Younger Chancellor of the Exchequer. For those of us outside the UK, and this includes me, the position is basically the second most powerful political position in the UK and makes him the man in charge of the Treasury. But like politics today, a win also means an enemy. And Charles Fox became a lifelong political rival of Pitt's. Fox then worked with the previously ousted Lord North to bring about the downfall of Lord Shelburne and caused him to resign in 1783. Isn't politics fun? But this obviously left the door open for Charles Fox becoming Prime Minister, but King George III, well, he could not stand Fox and turned around and offered the top job to Pitt. Again, politics came into play and Pitt knew that if he took the job, the powers at play would mean he really couldn't hold on to it at this time and so he declined the offer. The new Prime Minister became William Cavendish Bentinck, 3rd Duke of Portland. And with him in charge, the Fox North Coalition increased in power at the same time as Pitt lost his job as Chancellor of the Exchequer and also joined the political opposition. I mentioned before how Pitt got into Parliament through the corrupt use of by-elections in the boroughs and it was this process that he now publicly opposed. This stance brought him in much favour with his fellow politicians and many of those advocating for reform now looked to William as their leader as opposed to Charles Fox. Now, it technically probably could be said that being a Whig and then opposing the Whig government that Pitt was now a Tory, which was the title given to the more conservative politicians. But Pitt always saw himself as what he called as an independent Whig, he wasn't really into the whole partisan political party divides that we know all too well today, pretty much regardless of which country we were in. And then the Fox North Coalition made a politically fatal mistake. Lacking the patronage and financial backing of the king, Fox sought help elsewhere and in doing so attempted to gain an ally in the form of the legendary East India Company. Now that company which I could do an entirely separate series of podcasts on, was in short the forebearer for pretty much any multinational company that you can think of today, with the same incredible wealth and ruthlessness towards people. Exploitation is not a new thing. Now, the East India Company needed help politically, and Fox tried to drive through a bill that would see the East India Company stave off bankruptcy. This went down like a lead balloon with King George III, and while it made it through the House of Commons, 
when it got to the upper house, known as the House of Lords, the king stated that anyone that supported this bill would be perceived as an enemy to his reign. Pitt had also come out and stated that, quote, unquote, necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. It is the argument of tyrants. It is the creed of slaves. Just because you say they need something, well, there's always a price to pay. The king dismissed the government and for the third time offered William Pitt the position of prime minister. And so in December of 1783, at the ripe old age of 24, Pitt became the youngest prime minister in UK history. Many thought his administration wouldn't make it to Christmas, but Pitt was prime minister for 17 years. His honesty towards striving for an uncorrupted political system was incredibly popular. He was granted the freedom of the city of London, pretty much like being given the key to the city that we know of, and after this event, his coach was pulled by men from London as a kind of honour guard in respect. A lot of the political corruption occurred because politicians were always seeking money to aid in their access to the top jobs. And there were times when Pitt was politically beaten and should have resigned as per tradition parliamentary practices. But because he had such strong support from the king, he didn't need the money to aid in holding his position. As a consequence, during his time as Prime Minister, Pitt really helped clean out a lot of the problems that were inherent in the system up till now. He reorganised that East India Company, creating a board of directors to oversee their business practices and to rout out the corruption. And after the American War of Independence ended in 1783, the Americans refused to accept any more convicts from the UK, and it was under his administration the decision was made to send the convicts somewhere else. Any ideas? I'll give you a hint. I live there. Yes, it was Pitt the Younger that turned Australia into a penal colony. And given all our lockdowns, I'm thinking things haven't really changed. Anyway, I only add that point because it was such an instrumental change in one of the kingdom's main colonies. Outside of the 1800s, Pitt also had to deal with the French Revolution, a crisis in Haiti, the continuing Catholic issue in Ireland, and other world-changing issues. He survived them all politically and continued being known as one of the honest, dependable men that were in political office. But coming into our century of choice, it was this issue of the Irish Catholics that continued to dog his administration. I've mentioned before what was known as the Acts of Union 1800, in the King George podcast, but as a reminder, these were the legal changes that brought Ireland and Great Britain together as the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. But King George wasn't happy with William's attempt. He wasn't a fan of Catholics, and as a consequence, Pitt resigned from office on the 16th of February, 1801. His ally, Henry Addington, became Prime Minister, although he wasn't officially made Prime Minister until March due to a bout of King George's recurring illnesses. During this time, Napoleon was causing waves in France and Charles Fox, who was still around, as well as William Pitt, were both critical of Addington's policies. 
This altered the groups supporting the PM and ultimately saw Addington resign in April 1804. With Addington's resignation, once again, William Pitt became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. This time around, though, Charles Fox was a part of his administration. However, this act brought some opposition from his own supporters, as well as those of former Prime Minister Addington, and it actually gave him less strength politically than he had enjoyed during his previous tenure as Prime Minister. It was during this second term in office, though, that saw Horatio Nelson win the legendary Battle of Trafalgar. But despite this legendary victory, other defeats in 1805 at the Battle of Ulm and the Battle of Austerlitz saw Pitt's second administration struggle to hold power. Throughout his terms as Prime Minister, Pitt also served as his own Chancellor of the Exchequer, and in this capacity he showed himself to be an expert in finances, and his talent in this field saw Britain increase as an economic power as well as greatly expanding their Royal Navy. By the time we got to our 1800, Pitt had increased the number of sailors from 15,000 to 133,000 men in just eight years. This economic and military strength put Britain in an incredibly strong position as the 19th century began and they hit the ground running. It's no wonder they would go on to become the preeminent power in this century. But all the work and those political setbacks that saw Pitt struggle to maintain office took their toll. He had suffered ill health all his life and his known fondness for consuming port to aid his health did not help. He died on January 23, 1806, while still in office. He was unmarried and had no children, but such was his stature that Parliament agreed to pay his outstanding debts of £40,000. And he was buried at Westminster Abbey on the 22nd of February. His first cousin, William Grenville, first Baron Grenville, succeeded him as Prime Minister. Biographer William Haig wrote of Pitt that he never sought to make friends, preferring family or his Cambridge companions. His lack of marriage or any real examples of a relationship naturally led to circumspection about his personal life, given that he was known to prefer the company of younger men. Haig speculates that Pitt may very well have had some homosexual inclinations, but suppressed these for his political career, knowing what such knowledge would do to him publicly. His greatest legacy was the economic strength he left Britain with. His career-long attempt to abolish slavery sadly never occurred, although it was only a year after his death in 1807 that the Slave Trade Act saw this occur. He was a progressive Prime Minister whose political skills outshone his father's, and he is seen as being the greater of the two politically. Most of his career was before the 19th century, so I've left out some of his major achievements there, but it's important to remember that it was Pitt that set the country up politically, economically, and militarily in such a strong way for the decades to come. No doubt this could not have been achieved without the support of King George III. 
And while the king was somewhat of an unstable ruler, given his constant bouts of illness, his steadfast support of Pitt as prime minister gave the example of what could be achieved when crown and citizen work together. William Pitt the Younger is regarded as one of Britain's best prime ministers, and I find that hard to argue with. Anyway, here ended the episode. You can find me at victoriangaslab.com. My contact details are on there as well. If you could follow me on Twitter, that'd be great, at Vic Gaslamp, and more importantly, on Instagram, where I post history facts and trivia, as well as photos related to the episodes. And I'm Victorian Gaslamp there as well. The next episode will be out in two weeks, so keep a lookout for that, and I'll see you next time under the gas lamp.